Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Shivani. And I'm Lauren, and we are very excited to have Kamau Bell joining us here today. W. Kamau Bell has caught the world's attention by using comedy to open a dialogue surrounding social and political issues. Following the success of his critically acclaimed show, Totally Biased, his new show, United Shades of America, will premiere on CNN in early 2016. Welcome to the show, Kamau. Thank you. As a comedian who tackles issues of race, um, do you think there is a line when it comes to race and comedy, and have you ever perhaps taken it too far? Uh, I mean, everybody has their own individual line inside of themselves, so I'm sure there have been times when people have told me that they didn't like what I said. I mean, I've never taken it so far as where I was like, where I got fired from something or, or you know, had to have a press conference. So, you know, uh, but, you know, the future. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, but everybody, that's the whole thing is that people think, the thing is that people think their line is the line. So every day on Twitter, somebody tells me that I crossed the line, but it's just usually it's their own personal line. So, right. Uh, you know, I retweeted an article about that Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote yesterday about Bernie Sanders and reparations and people came at me like I had written an article and I had done something bad by even just sharing it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, so like, yeah, the, unfortunately in the future, everybody's, everybody's allowed to impose their line on everybody else. Now, having said that, the only line in comedy is, the main line is, are people laughing? Right. And uh, then what do they do with that after they laugh? So I don't think that, yeah, I mean, I'm certainly... I don't think there's any sort of like, you can't say this, you can't say mm-hmm. this. I think it's all contextual. So basically everything you share, everything you say kind of has your own personal stamp of approval on it. Yeah. I mean, that's true of everybody. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For I the mean, most part. Yeah. Agree, I mean, yeah. But everybody goes, I mean, we, you know, just take it back to Twitter. If you guys are on Twitter or we're Facebook or Instagram, whatever, mm-hmm. everybody's going, oh, I should have put that out there. You know, so that's just, <laughs> we, we, we are all, now that we have more freedom to put everything out, we're all learning where our own lines are. And sometimes like, oh, I didn't know that, that I did, shouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. That's true. All right. Um, and so this is something you've actually talked about briefly on you know, other shows and other interviews. But was there a specific moment when you realized that, you know, race or, or color perhaps had a meeting in terms uh, in terms of social norms? And, you know, how did this impact your worldview? That is a really academic sounding question. Say that again like I didn't okay. graduate from college. All right. so, race. I think I know what you mean, but I just want to make sure. When when did you realize that race was important to society, or when did you realize that people perhaps you know had a first impression and they looked at your skin color versus you know who you are as a person? I mean, my mom would not have raised me without knowing that. Right, I, would, I wouldn't have been allowed to leave the house until I knew that I was black mm-hmm. uh, by myself. Uh, you know, my mom has stories of like. I mean, I remember the moment we were, I don't know how old I was, but I was at whatever the age is that, and this is also contextual about time and history and neighborhood, whatever the age was when I would have left the house to go down the street by myself to like buy a candy bar. So like, but our neighborhood, like, so like that eight, nine, 10, 11 area, uh, that's, that's my mom. But she took me to the, like the local drugstore and it was in Boston. And she was like, okay, so when you go out to shop by yourself, don't touch anything unless you're going to buy it. Um, just look with your eyes. If you pick up something, then you need then you need to be intending to buy it. And if you put it down, <clears throat> make it clear that you're putting it back because that guy over there and she pointed. I don't know if she pointed, but she signaled towards it. Like that's the store detective, and he's going to be walking around following you uh, throughout the store when you're in here. And there was a guy standing there who then pretended to be doing something else. Uh, and so that that's the time when I when I was aware that like because I was I was still a boy, but the world was going to see me as uh, you know black. Boys don't get to be boys for that long. Mm. And so the world was going to see me as a dangerous individual, therefore a man or a future criminal. And so I needed to be aware 
not that wasn't right. That's not right. But I had to be aware of my surroundings and I had to be aware of my space and aware of how I was presenting myself. And so that's early on. But even before that, I grew up in a household where I've joked many times, you know, in our household, every month was Black History Month. You know? <laughs> so we, we talked about it in September, August, all of And so we always talked about black history. My mom had been a race warrior in the civil rights movement and been outspoken. So that was just the, that was just the wallpaper was just that we did that. We, I was going to go to boring black meetings and hear black people speak about boring things. At the time it was annoying, but now it's become like, thank God. And so mm-hmm. now with having, uh, being married, having two kids, they're mixed, which means they're black in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we just took our kids to a Martin Luther King Jr. teach-in on Martin Luther King Jr. day. And, uh, and my four and a half year old daughter made a Black Lives Matter sign, even though she can't read. So you know, it's like this is our this is our family business. Okay, okay. Um, and and so the the way you've kind of framed that question um, is that you definitely see a place in very early educating, you know, be it children or yeah. anyone else, the realities of the world. I th- I think we have a little, and I talked about this before. I think we have this whole thing about what do we tell the children, and what I've learned from having kids. For my four-year-old daughter is that you can tell kids anything because they don't know anything <laughs> and kids are totally able to handle whatever you tell them if they aren't they will tell you so and also you have to get in as a parent you have to get in on the ground floor and tell them things even before you think you're ready to talk about them because otherwise the world's going to tell them right and then the world gets to decide then that then your kid comes back and goes this is what the world said about gay people and you're like no and you have to talk them out of what the world said right and so for me it's like we live in berkeley so you know I mean, we have a, there's good friends of mine, a good friend of mine is married, she's married to a woman, they have, uh, they're both white, they have two, uh, a black daughter and a daughter who's half black and half Latina, and so my, my daughter Sammy uh, goes over there and she just sees two moms being two moms. We haven't had to have a discussion about what that is because it's just in her life. Right. Uh, now, having said that, the funny thing about my daughter is that the older daughter is much older than the younger daughter in this family. So she at one point thought they had three moms, you know, so it's just like, and, and, and she didn't go, that doesn't make sense. How do we, do polygamy is not good for this. You know, she just, it's just the reality. So I've learned that like kids' brands are way more, uh, you know, they're way st- more stretchy than ours right. and also way more, more resilient. So yeah, I would recommend, that's the thing, people of color and people of ethnic minority or religious minority have to tell their kids about this stuff earlier because mm-hmm. other, it's a life and death situation or it's a situation through which you have to explain this is why you may not this is why you may not be played with on the playground or this is why you may not, why you may not get that job later or whatever white people in this country uh, who you know the majority of white people in this country don't have to don't feel like they have to have those discussions mm-hmm. and then what happens is that their kids start to think the world is well this is how I see the world this is the world and then when somebody comes in and goes Hi, I'm a I'm a sick and I wear a turban. It's like that's a weird thing. I don't think you should wear that. That's making me uncomfortable. Well, the world wasn't put here to make you comfortable. You know, right. the world was put here to make all of us in aggregate comfortable, not you yeah, specifically. That's true. So you know, so I think that that's I think that that's the the biggest way in which we let down our kids and especially white people is by not sort of flooding them with as much information as possible as early as possible. Very good point. Um, so, as you may know, students at Claremont McKenna recently followed a national trend among universities by holding a dialogue centered around the issue of the marginalization of students and the support given to them by their institutions. We were just wondering, or you have said in the past, that a primary step in these movements is getting angry. Mm-hmm. And we were wondering if you could maybe speak more to your opinion and perhaps elaborate on the role of emotions in these movements. I mean, I think that a lot of uh, white people like to infantilize the memory of Martin Luther King Jr. 
like of this peaceful, like he just he why can't more why can't the Black Lives Matter feel me like Martin Luther King Jr. He just wanted to hug everybody and without understanding that that comes the first thing that Martin Luther King Jr. must have felt was anger. There's no you don't you don't go there without feeling anger. And then how do I process my anger? And there's different ways to process your anger. There's the Malcolm X which is like I'm going to speak directly to the issue and call it out as fiercely and often as I can right. uh, without fe- without you know without fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and be killed for it. And this is Martin Luther King Jr. version, which is like, I'm going to speak directly to the issue, but I'm going to do it in as in flowery and an inviting and as inclusive a way as possible to sort of humanize us with white people mm-hmm. so maybe they'll understand and then I'll get killed for it. So the fact is, is that neither one of those ways is more is better than the other, but people like to like sort of take the teeth out of Martin Luther King Jr. without realizing there's a lot of anger and sorrow and pain under, the, under those speeches. Mm-hmm. And... So for me, like anger, as I said, I mean, you know, I learned this from Zach De La Rocha. Anger is the gift. <laughs> anger is the fuel which pushes you towards change. How you how you choose to change at that point, or how you mm-hmm. choose to uh, put your message out in the world is up to you. But you know, anger is the fuel that gets you out of bed in the morning. Right, and it's, I mean, depression keeps you in bed. <laughs> Good point. Uh, so, so to that end, you've this a term or a phrase that you've also used in the past white spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. It, Institutions like higher education institutions have historically been white spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you kind of speak to your own definition of, of you know, the term? Um, and also, how can institutions like Claremont McKenna, which I'm sure you've heard of um, in the past going, and like Lauren mentioned, going through issues of you know, marginalized students being very dissatisfied with the institutional support they've been given, mm-hmm. how can they be more inclusive to marginalized students is the million-dollar question. Uh, it, will I get a million dollars if I answer no. it? <laughs> like, you would get my support and gratitude. I was going to say, yeah, it is the million-dollar question. Uh, how come nobody ever pays for the million-dollar answer? Uh, so I, I only learned that specific terminology. I certainly knew, I, as soon as I heard it, I felt it in the This American Life episode. In the in the This American Life episode, we used a clip from a meeting we had in Berkeley about microaggressions uh, from me being kicked out of a coffee shop mm-hmm. uh, for talking to my wife, my white wife. Uh, so, and then Nikki Jones, a professor at Cal, who had read a book, who was quoting Elijah Anderson, I think his name is the, the, the academic, talked about white spaces and black spaces. And so for me, I was like, oh, I totally get it. You don't have to say anymore, but keep talking. Uh, you see, I did, so it's not, I want to be clear, it's not my idea. It's an idea that I, it's like a third-party telephone game now. But to me, it's very clear if I walk into a space like this that even though you're here, and I'm trying to look around, and you know, uh, <laughs> and I got over there. But so what? There's one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. So we're like half people of color and half white. If you guys aren't white, please feel free to speak up now. Uh, huh? Okay, so even though we're even though we're like people of color, we're half this room. This is a white space, you know, because we're all not all of the same. Like none of us is like you know. So even though we, the world, the American way, say, oh, these are people of color, we're not all aligned in our causes mm-hmm. all the time. We don't have the same issues and concerns, right. so we're not fifty fifty. You know, it's <laughs> a, it's so as my friend Hari would say, it's fifty percent us and fifty percent you people. Uh, so. So even in this, even though we're sitting in this room and we're this would somebody would walk and go, this is a mixed room. We're in a white space. It was a space that was that was erected for white people and white concerns and white ideas and white uh, pedagogy and white ways of explaining information. And so that when I walk, when I step on this campus or step out into the city, it's very clear. Like this is white space, which means I should carry myself. There's just things in which I sort of subtly know how to carry myself or subtly right. know how to deal with people. And also, as you said, I'm a six foot four 
dude, which means I'm a six foot four black dude, which means as scary as I was at eight, nine, and ten or eleven, I'm way more scary now to people. Which means I had to sort of learn how to how I've learned to disarm people and sort of smile and hunch my shoulders a little bit so people don't think I'm as tall as I am. Because it's a again because of, ultimately it could be a life and death matter. Mm-hmm. You know, if one of if one of you runs out of here and goes, he just hit me. There's nothing I can say other than this tape because I just said it. <laughs> that I would suddenly be on trial for that, whether or not it happened or not, because I'm a black man, and so the the, the suspicion is, of guilt is always there. So I think what colleges, like, what every white space in this country needs to do is own their white spaceness. I think white people have to get way more comfortable with saying the word white, mm. as in not just with white walls, but as identifying themselves. Because white people tend to, and I'm married to a white person, so I have this, um, my, my wife when I met her described herself as Italian. Now, if you take her, her ethnic national makeup, she's, a, she's a, a quarter Italian, but she's way more British and English, British and Irish than she's Italian. Way more. It's like three quarters. But, or maybe a half, but because she grew up with an Italian grandfather, she identifies as Italian. Mm-hmm. Now, she gets to choose that. And whereas my mind is like, no, you're white. Because you're not Italian living, Italy speaking Italian, mm. you know, growing up in Italian culture. You're a white person from Monterey, California, living in Monterey culture, which is white culture, white American culture. And we've had this, she, she knows I say this, we've had this conversation. Mm. So I don't think I'm like, well, how could you? Uh, and you don't think that's an oversimplification? Is black an oversimplification? Fair point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's definitely an oversimplification, but it's the way that the country works. Right. When I pick up the census form, it doesn't say... Uh, before you fill out this form, take a DNA test with Henry with Skip Gates and find out all the different parts of yourself so you can accurately check all the boxes. Right. It says black, and we'll talk. I'll talk about this in my thing. It says white, and then it lists a bunch of different Asian races, and it lists some Polynesian or some Pacific Rim. It, it doesn't say. So it's yes, it's not, and I, but I think the thing is that white people often feel like I'm a mutt. I'm British. I'm I'm Irish. I'm German. I'm sweet. That's all white people, you know. And I think that whiteness has been has been owned by the neo-Nazis and the Klan. And so white people tend to sort of step away from that because that's scary. And what happens is that most of the white people in this country aren't in the neo-Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan, but because they won't claim their whiteness, they're leaving the rest of us hanging in our race. Like we're sort of like, I get treated like a black person, but then if I bring it up, white people say things like, don't call it, you're more, you're in America. You know, there's that sort of thing. Right. It just feels like you're not helping the problem right. when racism is a quantifiable statistical thing you mm-hmm. can look at and see. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. All right, so we would just like to conclude by asking a question about this concept of success, which we believe has undergone significant transformation. So what is success to you, and what is your advice to young people on how to reach that success? Uh, <laughs> it got so, it got so, uh, macro all of a sudden. <laughs> I mean, okay, it's, it's a, I think a commonality that people my age are very interested in because oh, we, we have the Steve Jobs, we have Mark Zuckerbergs and yeah. we're all, we're told as of, I think. And recently, we have Drake and Kanye. We have Drake and Kanye. <laughs> fair point, fair point. That education or at least undergrad, you know, the undergrad years are no longer this, this one step story to success. That mm-hmm. it's very much a, in, you know, just your own personal sort of motivation and desire to be successful. Yes. So with that in mind, what what would you define success as? Or in your personal life, where, when did you realize that you, know, you were you could be considered successful? Oh, like, I see. I internally. think that's I, yeah. I don't. That's funny. People will sometimes say that to me, and I'm like, I have not realized that I'm successful. <laughs> okay. I hope there's more to go. This is it. I've right. really screwed up. Right. Uh, <laughs> I hope there's a higher ceiling than this. And I don't mean this. I just mean in my life. I, right. I have more expectations, mm-hmm. higher expectations than this. 
for me, once you have kids, all your ideas of life and success for me changed pretty significantly. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's about giving them a life where they don't have to worry about the things that I had to, and I, you know, I had a good life, but giving them a, to put it right, to put it succinctly, the American success is raising your kid with the option to be an asshole. Paris Hilton has a, the option to be an asshole. Right. And it will not affect her in a negative way mm-hmm. because she's backed by billions of dollars. Right. Uh, people of color don't necessarily get raised with the option to be an asshole in the mm-hmm. world. You have to mm-hmm. sort of, and you, if you are an asshole, it's a criminal act or you are not hired or you can't pay rent or whatever. You don't have that option. And I'm sort of, I'm, I'm, again, I'm simplifying. Right, right. But the idea is that I would like to raise my two daughters with the option of being assholes. I don't want them to be assholes. But if I, if, 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 if when I'm dead and gone, uh, my daughters are like the, 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 the asshole bell sisters, uh-huh. but they're, but they're, but they're known for that and they're selling t-shirts and CDs or whatever it is. Like, to me, it's like, not that I want that, uh-huh. but I would like them to have the option to do whatever they want, including be a public, including being a public asshole. So when, when, think about this, Ann Coulter's made a career off of being a public asshole. Uh, Stacy Dash says one thing, and people are like, <laughs> you know, like it's not, it's not, you don't get the same space. Right. So young people should aspire to one day be able to give their kids the option to be, be an public. asshole. You shouldn't be an asshole. Let me be clear. I don't think I should be an asshole. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I, I don't have that. I don't have that ability. My mom didn't. Uh, my parents didn't work hard enough for that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but also the institution of race and racism has hold, held you, hold you back from mm. that ability. The, you know, to sort of think the, the Donald Trump thing, like, you know, started from the bottom, now I'm here. No, you started from millions of dollars. Like, Donald Trump gets to be an asshole every day because white supremacy and white privilege gives him the ability to have, to harness the resources that allow him to be an asshole. Mm-hmm. Like, like filing for bankruptcy several times, getting access to millions of more dollars, getting a TV show just because you're a rich guy, you know what I mean? Like, all those things, he has the resources to, he can be an asshole. He's, a, he's the number one asshole in this country, and we might elect him president. Now, if that was Oprah, let's say Oprah decided to like just go out and talk shit about everybody, mm. they would suddenly be like, "Man, she's not worth a billion dollars anymore." What happened? You know what I mean? Like it, it would it, it would have instant consequences right. that it does not have for Donald Trump. Right. It's white supremacy, white privilege, male privilege, uh, height privilege because he's tall. You know, it's two pay privilege. Two pay privilege. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's a any any other race of person who was doing that would be considered would roundly be considered. And would roundly be pushed away. Uh, and and here's the other part: of this. if that was a black, if, if Oprah was doing that every day, black people would be in rooms having conversations about Oprah, and every white person would be asking us, "What do you think about what Oprah said last night?" Is that happening to the white people? Are you having Donald Trump conversations every day? Every day. Okay. They are yeah. shaking their heads now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's like, so I'm, you are maybe you're politically motivated, but it's not. It's not expected. I've had that with the Stacey Dash conversation every day since Stacey Dash went on Fox News and said there shouldn't be BET or Black History Month. Wow. Now it's also the business I'm in, mm. but it's also every black person everywhere right. has to have that conversation. Right. All right. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much, Kamau, for joining us, and to all the listeners out there, remember to stay hungry. Thank you. Thank you.